welcome to Authors of the Pacific Northwest, where we connect Pacific Northwest authors with new listeners and provide advice for inspiring authors on the business of writing. I'm your host, Vicki J. Carter. podcast listeners. Thank you for coming back to the Authors of the Pacific Northwest. And today I am um, very excited to have a very distinguished author in his own right in many things um, on today. His name is Michael Gurian. So Michael, you want to say hi to everyone? Yeah. Hello, everyone. And thanks for having me, Vicki. You bet, you bet. So we're going to dig um, a little bit quickly into Michael's background because not only does he have his own podcast on a really great subject, he's an author, quite an extensive author, and your day job, I would say, is um, fascinating and you help a lot of people. So Michael, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners that don't know you, starting with what state you live in, in the Pacific Northwest, and tell us a little bit about yourself, like what you are what you do for a living, and then we'll get started on how you got published off of that. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, um, uh, Michael Gurian, and I live in Spokane, Washington. And um, uh, yeah, I have a podcast, The Wonder of Parenting, which I do with Tim Wright, uh, most of my work, uh, I have I published two novels, four books of poetry, then, of course, this book of short stories. Um, but in terms of, I guess, the number, most of my work is in nonfiction. And, and that's in four fields in nonfiction. Um, uh, parenting is one, psychology, education, and, and corporate or business. Uh, so I developed a, a, a gender theory using neuroscience. And I started developing it, started looking at it when I was here at Gonzaga University um, but then moving forward at the University of Washington, and then as I was, you know, continuing on, um, I developed this theory using neuroscience. Mm-hmm. So I use uh, gender neuroscience, so studying male and female brain, and then that that's generated a lot over the last thirty years. And so I've been, I've written now thirty two books. So I love it. Kind of, you know. <laughs> Kind of have a writing disorder, I think, where I can't stop writing. <laughs> I don't know. That's the plight of an author, right? And then you're fortunate to have something that you um, are an expert in and you're passionate about. So you get to not only write creative fiction, you can write on your expertise, which is fabulous to me. I yeah, I, I'm kind of my, my terminal degree, actually. I had some postgraduate work, obviously, in psychology, but my terminal degree is is an MFA. Oh, so, perfect. Uh, I actually started out thinking I would be a novelist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you know how that works. Oh, so. yeah. So, yep, yep. I hear you. <laughs> well, it's been fantastic. Well, I was very drawn to your work um, because I, you know, I met John um, Gosh, who's from my local area when growing up. And then I met him through the author community. And he was telling me about the individuals that he has that he's helping to publish. And I looked at your material. I'm like, oh, my goodness, we have a lot in common because I'm in higher education. Um, I work for a university, online university, full-time, love it to death, and we're working with all adult students. And one of the things that I work a lot with in faculty trainings is the difference of adult education and, you know, the, the mindset that goes in for adults. And so when I was looking at uh, what your background is, I was falling in love with that. I'm like, this is so great. <laughs> so I love it. We definitely have some around there. So tell me what's one thing or tell the listeners one thing right out of the bat. And it doesn't have to be on the creative side that you would like um, new listeners to know about you. You have a very extensive resume. So I encourage you listeners to find his website off our show notes and, and really check them out. But what's one thing you would like um, brand new listeners, new readers to know about you? 
Oh gosh, I don't know. I mean, the website is michaelgurian.com. I'm kind of a an open book, I guess. Uh, bad, bad pun there. Um, I, I love all the different fields that I write in and work in, and uh, I think I think I what I have tried to do over the over the years of writing is to find ways to have incredibly strong craft. You know, it's very important to me that the that the craft is really really good. Um, also very strong research, you know, so make uh-huh, sure uh-huh. That things are, you know, telling the truth. So no fake facts, just making uh-huh. really telling the truth. Um, and, and I think the storytelling, one thing I've learned, uh, I suppose that I didn't think I would, you know, back in the eighties when I was getting my education, I, I didn't realize this, but I think what I've discovered is that getting education in or writing, spending a lot of time writing fiction actually ends up helping nonfiction mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. writing a lot of nonfiction actually helps fiction. And I, I think the way uh, that the fiction helps the nonfiction is that, that in nonfiction, you, you you're, you're dealing in facts, but you have to tell a story to wrap the facts around. And mm-hmm. so, you know, writing fiction helps with that and, and, and vice versa. And I hadn't thought of that when I started out, but I've noticed that that's the case. And now, so I write both fiction and nonfiction and, um, and in writing this book of short stories, you know, I'm, I, I can feel the attention to craft is also attention to fact. You know, want to mm-hmm. make sure everything is real. Mm-hmm. So I, I, it's, a, it's an interesting crossover that I hadn't realized would happen. Mm-hmm. I, I love the fact, I love that point that you said about how nonfiction really helps the craft of writing fiction because I I'm diving into historical fiction. I'm a librarian by trade, so I can't help myself. Research is like up my alley. I love it, but I love very good research. So I won't really read a, a non a historical fiction novel if I'm getting in there and the research I could feel is just not there, not present as it should be. Um, but, but I love that fact because it's very, very true that, um, when we're telling a story, especially we're going to, we're going to talk um, readers about um, his short stories, but when you're telling the type of short stories that you're sharing, you really have to meld in the the story around the facts because some of the facts are pretty heavy and heart wrenching. (laughs) And so we have to, we have to lay that foundation for everything. So fantastic. So let's talk just Quickly, you, you've mentioned you had a lot of publishing. So in total, fiction, nonfiction in total, how many books have you published? Because you're also, uh, from my understanding, New York Times bestselling author as well. So so give us give us the publishing resume. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll do it fast. I mean, there's nothing worse than authors talking about themselves. Oh, I but, love uh, it. That's what we're here for. Well, <laughs> you know how it goes. But um, yeah, so I so it, I published 32 books um, and I... I, I I think uh, had a varied publishing career. I mean, most of my books are with the New York, what we now call the big five back when I started out, obviously there were like 27 to 30 Mm -hmm. New York Mm -hmm. publishers and it kept getting less. And so most of my work is with them, you know, the random house group, Simon and Schuster, um, et cetera. Um, and, and, And interestingly, you know, I've really valued that. I mean, that's how I, that's how I made my living for, for decades, for 20 years. And I really valued that. And, and, and as as the New York publishers were moving toward, you know, as Amazon, all that stuff that's happening that we all know about is happening over the last five to 10 years. Um, I, I kept publishing with New York publishers and, um, you know, I have a lot of friends there and really, really value them. But I also felt t- terrible sympathy mm-hmm. for them because um, uh, they, you know, people just kept getting laid off and getting fired. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so it's, it's been an interesting journey. And for this book of short stories, 
Uh, I was so glad that that John Gosh, who you probably will have on mm-hmm. or have had on, yeah, he has was been starting Laytop <laughs> Books, which is where mm-hmm. he's doing really high quality, you know. Um, and I just immediately gave it to him. I said, yeah, yeah, you published this book of short stories. Because I have noticed, uh, even in the nonfiction area, our Green Institute, so I'm the, the head of the Green Institute, and our Green Institute has been publishing a lot ourselves. And mm-hmm. and uh, this is our workbooks and those things. And so it's... It, I'm trying to kind of stay open to the whole varied landscape out there because okay. I've, I've published in all the landscapes. Um, uh, and, and I think we're noticing that a lot more is going toward uh, like Northwest presses, like, mm-hmm. like books, you know, and these just mm-hmm. the various things that are available now blows my mind because when I started, you couldn't, you know, it was so hard to get a book published. And oh, now, yeah, now yeah. it's everywhere. Everyone's getting book published. So it's just an amazingly changing landscape in my 30 years. It is. And it's fascinating for me to hear you speak. I've had other authors that have been on that have been publishing traditionally. Um, but I have indie publishers. I have hybrids, which do both, you know, and um, and then soul indies. And it's fascinating to me because 30 years ago, I thought about going into the industry, but I was in nowhere place anywhere to do that and that was you know you do solicit you try to get an agent you try to solicit the whole the whole thing and now the whole reason why this podcast became what it is is because I'm like there's so many other options out there and there's so many authors that have walked through the landscape or they're starting themselves as self-publishing and they have great wisdom to share with those like myself that are like hey this this is the time for me to do this <laughs> tell yeah. me Right. So, so I love the fact also that you took this particular collection to this. I, I mean, I wouldn't have met you had it, had it not been, you know, the authors of the Pacific Northwest and me, me talking to John and, and, um, cause this collection, I'm, I'm excited cause I'm, um, can't wait for you to talk a little bit about the story collection that, that the blind w- woman, um, because it really is dear to my heart, you know, female stories and, and the, I won't go into it. I'll let you talk about it, but <laughs> it's it's very dear to my heart. So tell me though, at, in this journey going along with the publishing, so you've done traditional, you probably, you know, probably at some point had an agent, gone through all that. What advice would you give somebody to like myself who's starting out? How's their stories written, ready to go? What's the best advice now as the landscape has changed? Well, Let's see. I mean, it's going to be varied advice because it'll depend on the kind of book. I mean, if it's a book of short stories, I think that it's really tough to get New York publishers to pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. So, so it's just going to depend on the different kind of book. So if it's a book of short stories, I don't think I would spend much time uh, if I'm a new author uh, um, seeking a, an agent. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mm-hmm. mean, maybe someone gets lucky, but I just wouldn't spend much time. Uh, now, if it's a novel and if, if the novel is, is, in a genre and it's, you know, it's been freelance edited. It's been edited. It's really, really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, rewritten seven times or something, right? I mean, it's gotta be really, really, really good. Yeah, exactly. Very, very good. Very powerful plot characters, etc. Well then, then it might be worth, yeah, seeing about an agent, but at the same time, I, when I advise young authors now, I say, you know, be simultaneous, look at the other options simultaneously that are out there. Look at, uh, as you said, the small presses, the midsize, the independents, the um, hybrids, look at them all, see what's out there, kind of study them, uh, see which ones might fit so that you don't waste a lot of time because the 
the probability for a novel right now, the probability is that the agent will reject. So, mm-hmm. um, I mean, it's just the probability. And, and then of course, as you, I'm sure told people on other podcasts, it's not really worth spending much time looking for an agent unless the author has a well-established platform mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because, you know, agents are, are looking for what publishers are looking for and what publishers are looking for. If they'll even take a risk on a book is they got to have a platform. They got to, mm-hmm. got to see that the person's on, on, you know, Twitter, Facebook yeah. hasn't, big newsletter list, you know, all of that stuff. Yeah. So in that category, that now for nonfiction, um, you know, in nonfiction, I think there's more room to, to find agents, um, Mm -hmm. but in, because more nonfiction is published and, uh, in the various categories, there are a lot of nonfiction categories. So, um, but at the same time, if an author does not establish a platform, and ha- is not like speaking on this topic already in 20 okay. cities or something. It's, they just got to know it's probable they'll get rejected by the agent. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't want to be negative, but I just oh, want no, to it's fantastic. do both at once. Mm-hmm. Like do both at once. You know, I, I do. Yeah, I have an agent. Absolutely. Yep. But, yep. but, and so that's part of how I know this. It's, it's like they are, as the publishers are, are diminishing in their capacity uh, the New York publishers, the the agents really need to use New York publishers to make a living. So, mm-hmm. um, but advances are getting smaller and et cetera, et cetera. So agencies are closing down and 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 therefore got to have a platform. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have a big platform, then simultaneously look at the midsize and independent and others, even self-publishing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Awesome. Fantastic advice. And it's something I have heard over and over again, that you can't just write a, a book and expect that everything's going to come your way. You have to do the hustle. You have to, you have to get yourself out there. You have to create, like you said, your platform and be willing to put the time and energy into that as much as the time and energy goes into the writing part of it. It's the business of writing. Sometimes I feel like that takes more energy and more time than the actual writing process does. <laughs> you know, it's like the creative side of it. So fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. So share with our listeners, because you do have two platforms. You have, um, you, you had, you already established your teaching and speaking um, platform as far as the topics you were interested in and then the books came or was it simultaneous for you? Well, yeah, it was. So my, I I wrote a book of poetry in 84 that was published. And then in 89, a a kind of a novella that was published Um, then, but my first trade, right. My first trade Mm -hmm. nonfiction book was published in 1990. And and at that time, I had already, I'm a mental, a mental health counselor, so I already uh-huh. had, had been teaching some seminars, you know, mm-hmm. on my, in my area. Um, uh, it was Jungian psychology, and those first three trade books of mine were Jungian psychology. Uh-huh. Uh, so I was doing some stuff. So mm-hmm. I was. And, and then based on those, I was able to construct a book. I, the book, you know, was sent in, um, found an a agent, found a publisher. And then, and, but my, my sort of, I guess, interesting story didn't really start until about three or four years after that. Mm-hmm. The, my first book was, trade book was The Prince and the King. The second was Mother, Sons, and Lovers. And the third was Love's Journey. All of these were Jungian psychology books, mm-hmm. in the, all dealing with relationships. Mm-hmm. I, however, was doing all this research and, and I started drafting The Wonder of Boys which was my, my first in terms of my sort of bestseller books. It was The Wonder of Boys. So I was writing it in 94 
and I had the other three books published. Now, at that time in, in 94, 95, when I finished the proposal for that book and gave it to my agent, um, all, all 26 publishers, there were 26 then, all 26 publishers rejected it. <laughs> and, um, and they all said, well, no one wants to read about boys. Um, you know, males have privilege. Girls are the ones who have trouble. <laughs> You know, boys were doing great. You know, there was a kind because there's an ideological overlay on on publishing and on the media that that still exists today. It's kind of Mm -hmm. it's a it's an ideological overlay. So, um, you know, so we're saying, well, well, remember, 50 percent of parent or 50 percent of children are boys. So Mm -hmm. there is a large market out there for for people. And there is no nothing out there on boys. And and I was using neuroscience. So it was unique. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, at, long story short, what happened was that all of them rejected it, and then I went back to the publisher myself. So I bypassed my agent. I went back to the publisher of my first trade book in 1990, mm-hmm. who was mm-hmm. at Putnam, and I said, look, you know, everyone's missing something here. I'm going to beg you. I literally was on my knees. I said, Jeremy, <laughs> I said, I'm on my knees. We were on the phone, but yeah, I'm on yeah. my knees, and I'm begging you to publish this, and you don't have to pay me in advance. And... um and he had been pondering things about it. You know, he himself had said, you know, I think we're all the powers that be are being too political. They don't realize that there's this massive market out there and mm-hmm, that it's a mm-hmm. very important topic, et cetera. And so what we ended up, ha- what ended up happening is that they, uh, Putnam did publish that book. And then that book, um, and for almost no advance, I mean, it was like, I think, he, I think at that time he could only pay $24,000 because if he paid $25,000, it had to go back up the chain. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> so it's just right under. <laughs> and this might sound like a lot, but remember that, as you know, yeah. they pay these advances over a four-year period. So yeah. it's, advancements are not what they're all called. I mean, I was honored, but it couldn't live yeah. on it. So no. when the book came out, that's when the surprise happened. So in mm-hmm. 90, in 96, in September of 96, the, um, the Wonder of Boys came out. And, and it just absolutely exploded out mm-hmm. and none of us expected the way it exploded out. Um, and, and then from then on, of course, I was mainly publishing nonfiction. Yeah. Yeah. I did publish a novel with Viking and a novel with um, Simon and Schuster, but I was mainly publishing nonfiction that, that was using the neuroscience. So that kind of exploded out a market also for using neuroscience in parenting, which mm-hmm. had done before. Mm-hmm. So this is what, I love about this story is that you believed in your writing and what the topic was so much that you're like, we, I have to get the, I, it's been rejected, but I have to keep moving this forward because it needs to be out there. And that's what I love about this story so much. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's, it's inspiring to me because, um, you know, as you know, the, the writing process is very solitary. Even if it's nonfiction and you're working on a great topic and you're doing research, it can be very solitary unless you have, you know, your ability to collaborate um, with others. But um, just the, the belief that, hey, this has got to go. I'm, I'm going to go for it and push it. And so I'm glad you shared that with us because it helps me to remember, you know, stories that you get. Sometimes you got to push them hard. Even if you, you're known, you still got to push it. <laughs> so. Yeah. So let's talk about support groups a little bit. So it sounds like you have a pretty great support group over the years. Um, so share with me and um, the listeners your main support groups for your writing and your writing process. And then from there, can you talk a little bit about um, if you feel like 
um, there's any support groups that we can have other authors reach out to that we might not already know about. Because I like to collect resources and get those out to other aspiring authors. Yeah. Well, on the... Let's see. On the second point, I don't. I don't think I know of any formal groups um, that are formal. And, mm-hmm. and this will speak to the first point because the the way that my support as an author it's evolved obviously over the decades. And the you know initially uh, in the MFA program. Uh, so I, I got my MFA in '85. So in the MFA program, we had a you know we're always workshopping, mm-hmm. and, and then we graduated, and those people who were still around Spokane. I was around for another year, so we were talking to each other. But then um, my wife and I went to Turkey. We lived in Turkey for two years, which is mm-hmm. kind of part of where the, this book of short stories comes mm-hmm. from. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there, uh, I my support, of course, there's always family. So we all assume we know yes. we have our family yeah. support. But yeah. in terms of other authors, uh, there was a in Ankara where I taught, there were a number of poets. And so, um, so they were Turkish. And we made friends and uh, it was, it was a really neat support. And I ended up doing some translations with one of those. Oh, how fabulous. <laughs> so that was, you know, like you're getting at looking for support wherever one is. And that's mm-hmm. what I was doing there. Then when we came back to the U S we came back to Spokane, which is where we still live. And I started teaching at Gonzaga. And so uh, reconnected with other authors, especially reconnected with Terry Truman Mm-hmm. who is a young adult author and we've been friends a while. Um, and then other authors through him and others that I knew. Uh, and, and, and then as it evolved, what I started to notice, and I don't know if other authors will notice this, but I started to notice that I needed, since I was now publishing, right? So I was mm-hmm. three or four or five books in publishing. I needed to have the support of other authors who were published. Exactly. So mm-hmm. it couldn't be anymore just anyone. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just an evolution. It's really not a negative on anyone. It's just mm-hmm. an evolution. You One gets to a certain point where one needs the support of people who are published because they understand how to how to workshop and give feedback mm-hmm. that, that's toward publication rather than that's more sort of emotive or psychological or therapeutic, mm-hmm. which we do do a lot when we workshop each other. There's a lot of therapy involved, but, oh, yes. but at a certain <laughs> point, one needs to move toward that. So I, I did move there um, certainly in the by the early 90s toward three or four other people who, who also were published. And, and there's a kind of trust there too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I do suggest to um, writers I'm mentoring whatever is their support group, you know, make sure that at least one person in there has actually been published mm-hmm. so they can, you know, so that they can be looked at as sort of a person to give the feedback that's going to ultimately, at least for second, third or fourth draft is going to be probably the most useful mm-hmm. um, because they've been published and it, it, by second, third or fourth draft, you know, one hopes one is starting to move toward wanting to be published. So Correct. yeah, right. Got to revise toward publication. Um, uh, got to keep integrity, but those are not opposites. Publication mm-hmm. does not mean lack of integrity. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Exactly. so yeah, that's how it started to evolve for me. And now um, my, you know, my sort of best pals where we share work are, are um, I have some friends around the country, but it's mainly here. in the ones here in Spokane are like mm-hmm. Terry Truman, mm-hmm. John Gosh. Mm-hmm. Um, well, these are folks who have been published and yep. 
and uh, and we see all you. wonderful authors as well. And I think every single one of them will be on the podcast. So I'm just thrilled that oh, it connected because for me, it's inspiring. And I, and I love that you talk and you speak to the fact that there is a metamorphosis that should happen with an author and their support group. If you stay in with a group of people that are just, you know, dabbling in the writing process and you're ready to, you know, you publish, you need to expand your networking out to get around those that have also published to start that next phase for you as an author, if you're going to move forward. So I appreciate you that you mentioned that. Um, so very good. So before we get started on the actual, the book that um, you're going to read from, tell us what your inspiration is. And it, it doesn't have to be about this particular book, but overall, what, what keeps you going as an author and what inspires you? Well, I, I think what keeps me going as an author is, I, I have to say that I just think that's how my brain is set up. Mm-hmm. I just, I have to get up every day and write. And, and, you know, when I'm asked, like, you know, what's the key, you know, everyone likes, what's the one key to yeah. writing and stuff like that. Tell me the secret. <laughs> I, I always say, I always say, well, you know, we can all only speak for ourselves, but for me, it's writing every day. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so my brain seems to be set up for that. And if I don't write every day, I get almost agitated, you mm-hmm. know, so it's, it's, it's obviously my spiritual process and mm-hmm. it just happens to be how I also make a living. Um, so I think that, that's what keeps me going is that I write every day. Now there are other layers. Of course, I will get inspired by other people and what they're doing. People inspire me. I'll get inspired by things that are going on. And in my particular line of work, I'm an educational consultant. I spend a lot of time in schools. I speak a lot. So I'll get inspired by the people I'm serving, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, and I'll, I'll get inspired by fans. People will Mm -hmm. write me a fan email is usually where the longest stuff is and they'll write me a really long email and I'll, I'll, it'll really inspire me. You know, they're having this issue or that issue or um, make sure to deal with this in your next book. And, you know, and it's so, mm-hmm. so on the nonfiction side, I'm very inspired there. And then on the fiction side, um, I, I m- most inspiring for me as a fiction writer, and I think this is inchoate and unconscious because I'm not really planning it out, but is, is the connection um, between the sort of, the sort of wraparound of spirituality that I think exists in everyone's life. Um, and depending on how we define that, this sense of, of what is greater than the self mm-hmm. and, and just wanting to spend a lifetime in a way, understanding the details of how, how people are connecting with, with what is greater than the self, but they're actually doing it. We're all, all actually doing it mm-hmm. in the details. And mm-hmm. so it's the, it's the details of the story that are connecting us with what is, um, if there's immortality, you know, with that. And so it inspires me because that's one of the things, like in a way, the field that I began my research in decades ago, I feel that I, you know, I've mastered that research. And, mm-hmm. and now I am writing as, as a master of that research. There's always more to learn, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm an expert. So, and mm-hmm. I get that. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to fiction um, and this, this sense of the self in the larger cosmos, through the details of relationship, the details of life, that is endless. Mm-hmm. One doesn't master that. That that is a mystery that one is always writing. So that that mm-hmm. really inspires me. I love it. I love it. that, and that must be seriously why I'm drawn to this work and your work in particular. Because I, that's something I dwell upon a lot is how relationships help to um, reveal the divine and also not the so divine. <laughs> and then how do we resolve those, you know, in our lives and, and the good and, you know, the, the some things that come out in our lives that aren't good, 
they can always be turned around to find something good and powerful through them. So, so wonderful. Okay, so let's talk about your work. Tell us the title you're going to read from. Share a little bit what you can with the readers about it that doesn't reveal everything about the book and then set us up for your reading. And I'm going to go quiet and listen to it. <laughs> oh, okay. Thank you. Well, um, so the book, the book is uh, The Blind Woman and Other Stories. And so there are seven stories in the book. The, the inspiration for them you know, they're, they're uh, selected stories, 1987 to 2001. So these are all, uh, these are my stories I've selected from that time period. Um, and, and so, you know, so 86 to 88, we were in Turkey. Uh, and and I, I was, that's obviously an Islamic country. It's a, it's a more centrist European Islamic country. Um, but then we also traveled around the Middle East. And previous to that, I had spent a summer in Israel. Uh, and uh, so... There was a lot going on inside of me that in, that was in Kuwait, of course, about that, about Islam, about the Middle East, about Americans in the Middle East, um, you know, Israeli-Palestinian conflicts. I mean, there's just a lot going on. And when I so when we were in Turkey, I wrote the first book. Um, I'm sorry, the first short story that's in this book. I started writing it while we were in Turkey. And it's the only one that was published while I was there in a, it was published in the Missouri Review. It's called Najati Bay and it's in here. And it's, it's about, and I'm not going to read from it, but it just gives you a sense of where this came from. It's about the subtleties of, of relationship and how they go awry when two people from two cultures don't really understand each other. You know, they, they, and that to me is sort of a metaphor of what happens with the West and with Islam and the West and the Middle East. Um, and, and so then I kept writing these stories and they all involved. Now, most took place in the U.S., but uh, one takes place in Israel two take place in Turkey. Uh, one takes place in Egypt, uh, but they, they connect with the U.S. So they all are connected with Americans and how Americans are trying to figure it out. Uh, and so there's a lot of subtlety of relationship. However, as you'll see from what I read, there's a lot of action. I mean, every story is, you know, they all have a lot of action underneath it is is the inspiration of being over there and trying to figure out that world and realizing that here I was immersed in that world uh, and I learned the language I'm teaching at, at, a, at a, a, a Turkish language speaking university so I was pretty good there I was inside the culture but even I as an American had terrible trouble understanding all of the customs and um, uh, so what I came away with is a number of stories the blind woman is the title story. So it's the blind woman and other stories. And the blind woman actually takes place in the U S and it's, um, uh, so Lori Fuller is a nurse. Uh, so she's a hospice nurse and she's young around 25 hospice nurse. And she's very, you know, very clear coming through that she's a young feminist and she has very clear ideas, you know? Um, so she's a hospice nurse who is assigned to this African Muslim family because the mom, Mrs. Mostabi is is uh, terminal and she's been declared and so now a nurse is assigned and so she goes to the home to meet her patient with his which is mrs mustavi but of course mrs mustavi is lying there in bed she's she has been blinded by her cancer and she's barely can you know barely talk or move so the interaction between Lori um beyond the nursing the, the verbal interaction is with mrs mustavi's daughter tess and tess has raised in the u.s so uh, Mrs. Mostavi's from uh, Somalia. She's from the old country. So I'm going to start this reading from where Tess. So there are three characters here. Tess, 
the daughter, Mrs. Mostavi, the mother, uh, and then Lori, the nurse who has come to their home now. And now Tess is going to introduce uh, Lori to Mrs. Mostavi. Should I get started? Yes, please. Okay. This is from the blind woman and other stories. Mama, Tess says, it's Lori, the hospice nurse. Mrs. Mostavi, lying in the bed, had dark black skin, much darker than her daughter's complexion. She lay on her back. Her eyes, in a very wrinkled small face, were staring upward at a white stucco ceiling. Her hands, black on the outside, reddish on the palms, were half crooked on the edge of each hip. The large bed, which had been brought in yesterday, took up a third of this room, had an IV behind it. There was also a piano, flowers, plants, and a card table with bills and other papers on it. Tess must have been doing family finances while sitting with her mother. Hello, Mrs. Mustavi, Lori said as she smiled. She knew that about two years ago and unrelated to her cancer, Mrs. Mustavi had begun to lose her sight. Though her seemingly ancient head turned toward the new voice and her watery brown eyes gazed at the new person, there was no sight there except the images conjured in the mind of the blind. Lori took Mrs. Mustavi's right hand, clasping it firmly and kindly, watching the electric signs on eyelids and brow of more images trying to form within. Tess brushed a flake of dry food off her mother's almost hairless black head. Mrs. Mostavi weighed 85 pounds with wrists like small sticks and little bust under her gown. Blind, quieted by disease and bedridden, her soul was already slipping free of her body. I'll be here with you for many hours per day, Lori explained, speaking in that way the dying sometimes inspired, melodious, slow, economical, like talking to children. I am here to help any way I can. Tess asked the questions and Lori answered, and Mrs. Mostavi was like a table between them upon which they laid out their strategy. Toward the end of the conversation, Lori moved to begin her check of bedding, urine, and fecal bags. She pulled Mrs. Mostavi's covers back, preparing to check under her gown for the catheter immersions. Seeming a little nervous now, Tess said, have you ever spent time in Africa? Uh, no, Lori responded honestly, pleading the covers neatly back. Have you spent time with African women? No, no, not really, Lori responded, now lifting the elderly woman's gown. She paused a second, realizing she didn't know why Tess had asked. So she said, you know, we're all built the same, joking, smiling, reassuringly. She thought, was Tess feeling modest about her mother? Maybe Tess should leave the room? Yes and no, Tess responded, helping with the gown. You'll see. Speechless, Lori saw. She saw genitals shaved perhaps a month before, a slight stubble growth of gray, very normal. But beneath them was a flat scar where the clitoris should have been. This scar visible because most of the labia had been sliced off as well. Mrs. Mostavi, far away on morphine, lay unselfconsciously as her nurse saw scarred stitching holes all over the lower half of the vulva. Mrs. Mostavi's private, most sacred folds of flesh were vestiges of mutilation, worse in some way than the cancer in her bones. Male nurses, Tess said, with nonchalance, seemed to react less badly than female. Laura did not respond, trying to hide her horror. Uh, you've read about this, but never seen it, Tess said frankly. Yes, uh, yes, I guess so. Lori quickly checked both catheters and, uh, catheters and replaced the gown over the old woman's groin. 
She felt angry as she looked up at Tess again, angry at Tess, at Mrs. Mostabi, at Muslim men. Control yourself, she soothed inwardly, moving her gaze back to the blind woman's eyes. Lori looked at Tess again then and raised her eyebrows, hoping she sounded calm, professional. When was that done to her? Tess said, she told me she was 11 at the time of the ceremony. Ceremony? Lori could now not hold back her anger. Jesus Christ, those men should be shot. It's worse than rape. Tess looked down at her mother's hands. The men in her village knew little about this. It wasn't an affair of women. No, it was... Tess, uh, Lori gestured toward the ceiling as if a bearded god were there. No, it was men. Your mother could have died. Jesus. Tess said she did not think she could live unless she joined in this ritual. And suddenly, shocking herself out of anger, Lori wondered if Tess had mm, experienced a similar mutilation. She couldn't ask, but her face must have spoken. No, you, you wonder if I've been involved in this too, don't you? And Lori said quickly, no, but Tess said, I haven't. I was born in America to a father who, though I never knew him, would certainly not have wanted it. Most fortunate for me was the fact that my stepfather, who understood these things, made sure my mother did not succeed at it. Your mother wanted you? Lori couldn't finish. She had heard of mothers betraying daughters, but like this? Tess said, Mama had the other women set up. And they had me naked from the waist down, held down, and the doctor was washing his hands. My stepfather came rushing home from work. Someone had told him. He screamed and beat the doctor and locked my mother in the basement. My God, Lori said. I tell you this, Tess said, because I have been thinking about it since I called the hospice. And she turned away, her eyes watering. Lori's anger was not replaced as she saw Tess's grief and embarrassment, but it shifted. She approached Tess and touched her arm. Tess reacted at first only by staring at her mother. Then her shoulders shook and she began to sob. The rain poured outside the small window, imbuing Lori with a sense of bleakness like a sound inside an empty drum. She held the older woman, breathing deeply, recognizing as she closed her eyes that she was here now, fully here, in this particular house of the dying, each house unique in its unopened rooms of mood, pain and memory. And that's actually the beginning of the story. So a lot more happens. Oh, so powerful. <laughs> Thank you for writing it. I, I just, I'm at awe that you're bringing the cultures together. Cause we in America are so unaware of how we react to other cultures, unless you actually go to other cultures and visit and, and participate. So beautiful. <laughs> Well, thank you. Yes. Okay. So next one I'm ready for. <laughs> Should I read another? Do we have time? Yes, we have plenty of time. <laughs> okay. All right. Great. Then I'll read. So this is from the story called A Desperate Pride. And this story is set in um, uh, in Israel and in Palestine. Mm -hmm. uh, so what at that time was called the West Bank still is, although folks are right now moving toward calling it Palestine. Mm -hmm. So this story takes place pre 9 11. All right. So there is not reference to 9 11 in this. Mm -hmm. And the story takes place. Um, uh, what has happened is that Rafi, who's an American Jew, has moved to Israel after the breakup with his girlfriend, Sherry. And he's a poet and he's been working on poems. And 
and he's, you know, he wants to go to Israel and, and um, I happen to be Jewish as well. And mm-hmm. he talks in the story about how for a, for an American Jew, when you go to Israel, you feel a connection that you didn't think you would feel kind of a home connection. You know, mm-hmm. you feel like you're home, even though I prefer living in the U S but you feel like your home and, and he's seeking that feeling. He's had abandonment. He's seeking that feeling. And he, you know, like me lost almost all his relatives to the Holocaust. So there's only a few left. Mm-hmm. And one of them is this relative that, so he goes and he moves in with this relative, um, uh, Gabi, who you don't meet in the part I'm going to read, but, but he's in the background and Gabi has a roommate, Nafisa and Nafisa actually was raised in Ramallah in the West bank. And she mm-hmm. has come in and now lives in Jerusalem to go to school. So she's going to Hebrew university. She's getting a degree, which was, which is actually not uncommon in Israel, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's only an hour and she goes back to see her family. Well, she falls in love. They fall in love, these two. And so they're, you know, a little star crossed and they're resisting the fact that they're a little star crossed. You have an American Jew and (laughs) this young Palestinian woman. Mm -hmm. It's okay when they're in Jerusalem, but now they're about to go back. And so they go back to her home in Ramallah. They sit with her family. They're, you know, they talk, everything's okay, but there's, you can see hostility there toward him and also toward her Mm -hmm. is, you know, because of this. And, um, but Rafi is this wonderful sort of naive, wonderful guy and she's hoping for the best, you know, and, and so he reads some poetry of his. So there's a folder referred to in this section. Well, it's his poem that he's been writing to try to make peace with the Muslims. And he says to her family, I'm writing this poem to make peace with the Muslims. You know? <laughs> and uh, and the, the, like her parents are kind of hanging in there okay with it, but there's some cousins who are, who clearly look like they would be more violent. Um, okay. So they walk out and they're now, now coming out and walking down the streets of, of Ramallah. And uh, I will start and they, oh, and they get a little spicy and they're like, oh, we should go behind this thing and, you know, this. <laughs> Right. Which is, of course, very, they shouldn't do it, but they oh. love it. They, OK, so then I'll start. Um, he, he says, God, you're beautiful as she's she and he were against this wall behind this building. Oh, you're so beautiful. Rafi declared. And then it was as if for a split second, time exploded. Rafi was hit on the back of the head, his eyes widening in shock, <clears throat> his head smashing forward just over her right shoulder into the wall. She heard a dull crack and she screamed into his body. There were two boys, faces hidden in cloth, who ran at her. One held a rock and the other had just thrown his. One of the boys hissed at her to shut up, fierceness in his eyes, and he hit Rafi's head with his jagged rock and more blood spurted. Nafisa was now trapped beneath Rafi, between Rafi and the wall, her face splattered by thick red blood. She closed her eyes. She shut her mouth instinctively, groaning, and now she knew she was going to be beaten. She wanted to scream. She tried to scream, but a hand came across her mouth. Her hands went up to push at the boy who smelled of cologne. Hamit and Ali, these were the two who were in the dinner, Hamit and Ali must have sent them. It must be. But who were these boys? Both boys held her now, one pinning her neck with his arm and crushing her body against the wall, the other holding her hair back viciously. They were not speaking. They were hiding in silence. But she must know them. And Rafi lay on the ground unconscious. So she bit the hand, drawing blood, and the boy cried out, but then he hit her. She fell, her back skidding against the wall. Flailing her arm, she tried to stop her skid, and her right thigh hit Rafi's shoulder, 
Then her head hit on the cement next to him. For a second, she was unconscious from the blow. One of the boys then kicked her in the ribs and the other kicked Rafi. Her face was covered in blood and she felt a terrible pain and an ooze above her temple and in her hair at the back of her head. Her hands tried to move to her head, to her ribs. A man's voice shouted, stopping the boys suddenly. And now they ran. Was it Mr. Falat running over? Who, who was that? Now there was a woman's voice. And now there was the terrible stench of rot, of blood, and still she smelled the boy's cologne. It is Nafiza Thura, Mr. Falat cried. And now more voices, more people, more hands. Rafi, Nafiza cried. A handkerchief was suddenly in her hand as she tried to remove blood from her eyes. A woman's voice said, look, the American. A young man's voice said, she should not have brought him here. Hands helped her up. Go get Abu Hussein and Ibish, a man ordered. Nafisa's eyes, now clouded not by blood, but some kind of triple image, saw outlines of Mr. Masima, a salesman, in front of her. The American is breathing, someone said. Nafisa heard papers being collected before she turned to see Mrs. Masima collecting Rafi's poem. And now Rafi finally uttered a groan. I will get my car, Mr. Masima rose up and then ran. The clinic was only blocks away. Nafisa, Rafi groaned. His face was covered in blood his eyes finding her as he, wiped, as he wiped at them. A man kneeled next to him, trying to help. The man's handkerchief red with Rafi's blood. Rafiza tried, uh, Rafi tried to reach for Nafiza, but by the aid of all the hands around him, it was as if he were being restrained from her. There were two boys Nafiza managed. How terribly she wanted to cry. Go find Hamid and Ali. They'll know about it. But she said nothing. No one here, even the first witnesses present, would say anything to catch the culprits. Even if she spoke up, the Palestinian police would look at her grimly. He is a Jew. You are a Palestinian. Your cousins are Palestinian. Finished. What would Rafi do? What would he tell the police? Rafi was trying to grasp his paper, still on his knees, as two women helped Nafisa to stand. Why did you bring him here? One whispered, not maliciously, not really in anger just reserving in her voice that right any onlooker enjoyed to speak the obvious. With a concussed glaze in his eyes, Rafi was murmuring something about Sherry, then about his poem. But he dropped the bloody file and papers, and a man helped him gather them. Blood dripped off his beard. Nafisa, Papa's voice, breathless, came through the small crowd. Nafisa was upright now, holding her head. The figures and shadows in her eyes were lessening toward one vision again. Even in the camps, even in towns always in the thick of a war, Nafisa had not herself been hurt this way. Papa, she cried. Ibish, her father, took her arm. Ibish, her brother, took her arm as Papa held her. And then Mama ran up behind, equally breathless, wailing at the sight of her bloody daughter. So, of course, a bit more happens after that, too. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, I I just think that your stories are absolutely courageous. And I love that you're sharing the side of it that many of us would never see. So thank you. Thank you for doing that. Thank you. Yes. So tell me before we go, tell the readers what's on the agenda for you in the future. Do you have any big plans after, you know, this book is and when is it going to be released? Because I believe it's in um, going to be released soon, correct? Yeah, the, the Blind Woman is coming out here in September. 
Um, and uh, uh, so it'll come out. And then we're, uh, so my next, my next major publication I know will be fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just recently published The Minds of Girls and then just before that, Saving Our Sons in the nonfiction area. And the, those have sort of caught up that research. So I'm probably not going to write another psychology or education book for um, mm-hmm. at least a few years. And I'll be focusing more in terms of publication on fiction. And uh, so I think I'll be probably publishing one one fiction book a year. I have two more books of short stories, you know, for the, the next two decades. And then... Um, uh, and, and then a number of novels I've been working on over the last 20, 25 years. For someone like me who is mainly asked by the New York publishers to write nonfiction, you know, I have to work on my fiction. Uh, on the a, side? <laughs> sort of, yeah, I, I think of it as, immer- as immersive in my life, but from yeah. the outside world, it looks like I'm doing it on the side. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now that I've completed, you know, now I've completed those other nonfiction books, I, I, would, think, I would think I should be able to do one fiction a year. Oh, fantastic. Well, I look forward to it. So listeners, um, go to show notes, um, get onto Michael's page, get this book, um, read it, write a review for him as well. I'm sure that any review is, you know, great, even though you have quite an extensive um, portfolio of writing reviews are fantastic. So definitely do that. Oh, yeah. listeners. Thank you for coming on the podcast. And um, we'll definitely have you back when you have some more work to share another short story collection or your fiction. We'll bring you back because I really oh, enjoy thank it. You. I really thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks everyone for listening. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We hoped you loved hearing from the author as much as we did. If you did enjoy the author, make sure you find them on social media. Buy their book and write a review. Are you a published author and would like to be featured on the podcast? Visit us at our website to learn more. You can help support the production of this podcast by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Share the podcast with your friends. And most importantly, become a supporter. Supporters receive monthly bonus podcasts and a newsletter filled with tips from our authors. To find out more how to become a supporter, visit our website. And finally, I hope you always remember to enjoy the journey. Until next week, this is Vicki J. Carter saying goodbye.